Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss film, politics, and culture in an attempt to figure out what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Join us for our magical realist horror Halloween special and meet The Pointless Century's newest co-host, Will O'Brien. Tonight, we'll be thinking about the associations between nature and the demonic, the origins of chromophobia with animals, the personal ties directors hold to their films, and ableism in the horror genre. Welcome to The Pointless Century. I'm your host, visiting assistant professor Frank Fucile. He, him. And I'm joined by my co-host. I am Anna Wendorf. She, her. And I'm a third-year student at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. I'm a double major, and I'll pass it off to Will. Uh, I'm Will O'Brien. He, him. I'm an English major at UW-Eau Claire. I'm a senior, Mm -hmm. so fourth year. And I'm a theater minor. And my co-producer. Hi, I'm Madeline. I use she/they pronouns, and I'm a third year here at UW-Eau Claire, and I study social studies, education, French, and European studies. Happy Halloween, everybody! So we're looking at four horror films tonight. Wanted to categorize these as magical realist horror with the idea being that these are movies that use elements of the supernatural, but attempting to do so in these extremely realistic ways. And of course, I'm fascinated by the question of what do we mean when we call something realist or realistic, which is why I thought that this would be a good choice for us as a Halloween episode. The movies are Rosemary's Baby, directed by... Roman Polanski, starring Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes from 1968. The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers and starring Anya Taylor-Joy and Ralph Innocent from 2015. And then two movies by Ari Aster, Hereditary, starring Tony Collette and Midsommar. Does the category feel like it makes sense? Yeah. Is it a productive category or not or why? I don't know. Tell me what you think. Yeah, I I definitely think it is a good genre describer. Because for me, like all of these films sort of have this aspect of the characters not really sure if what they're seeing is real. Each film has the dreamlike quality. As you're watching it, you're kind of going through the same process as the main (laughs) character, where you're not really accepting certain things as reality. But then at the end, you sort of come to this point of acceptance of that this is like the new normal. Yeah. So it's sort of like melding that magic yeah. with realism. It's sort of like an almost genre bending concept, the way that it's presented, because I mean, obviously, you know that it's supposed to be a horror movie, but the meticulous realism of these, I think, really messes with your sense of knowing whether it's supposed to be in a supernatural universe or not where, for lack of a better way of putting it, a more obviously campy horror movie would be more obviously just like 
okay, there are no clear rules. This supernatural stuff is in bounds or a more like gritty crime style psychological horror movie would be like, okay, well, obviously this is in our world as we know of it. These movies really do play with that genre boundary where you know that something else is going on, but it just feels so realistic in the presentation that often like the whole plot really is centered on grappling with this concept of, is it a dream? Is it real? Is magic an actual thing? Or is this just something that people are talking about? What was your favorite of the movies? I don't know. It was my first time seeing The Witch. I didn't know what to expect. I would say by far my favorite one, and it's not even close, is Midsummer. It was actually my least favorite of the bunch, though that's kind of leaving out Rosemary's Baby because Rosemary's Baby is kind of in there more as a period marker at the beginning of the genre, if we're going to call it a subgenre. So I'm not really, you know, you have to judge a film from that long ago on sort of different grounds. But of the three A24 films, actually, I liked Midsummer the least. But I think that that's just a matter of my own personal taste. It's an incredibly beautiful movie. It's very, very well shot, very, very well presented. The locations and the set design are like completely impeccable. And the acting is pretty good too, but it just wasn't really to my taste the way that those other two are. I also thought Midsummer was my favorite. I think it might be because I saw it in theaters. So I had a different like initial experience to the film as compared to the other two. And I've seen all of them multiple times. So oh, wow. I've, yeah, cool. I think I've seen, yeah, I've seen each of them at least twice besides Rosemary's Baby, but I did really enjoy all of them. I really like The Witch. I kind of just like period pieces, you know. Yeah. I like The Witch major. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Witch is my personal favorite because I think it really digs into this concept of doing a horror movie as a realistic period piece. Again, the set designs are incredibly detailed and apparently Eggers had experts in reenacting and construction of houses, construction of animal pens and stuff like that. So it is about as close to a 17th century New England farm as they could manage to do. And that is really impressive to me. But let's start out by talking about Midsommar and then I guess we'll work our way backward. Madeline, what do we want to talk about first? Because there's so much to talk about. I mean, we could just start from the beginning. It is a pretty intense first couple of scenes, you know? Yeah. And it's very yeah. different from the rest of the film. But it starts with the woods, too, which I think is interesting. Uh-huh. Common theme. Yeah. I guess with all three of the ones that we're looking at from, like, the 21st century, the woods and stuff like that plays a big role. Yeah. So... Rosemary's Baby is supposed to be the second in what Polanski claimed as his apartment trilogy. And all three of those movies are supposed to be really specifically about the kind of bizarre and alienating experience of urban life. Yeah, these three A24 movies are sort of focused on this, in many ways, much older issue of demonic nature is kind of how I'd describe it or what the eco-critics would call, you know, ecophobia. It's really obvious in The Witch. And, and that is part of what really nails this 17th century uh, setting for me. But yeah, we see that in Midsommar and that opening shot with the woods, is that supposed to be Sweden in the winter? And we're going back and forth already between Sweden and where they start. I don't even remember where they were from originally before they come over. 
I could not tell. From my impression of it, I thought it was where they lived in the United States, but I'm not 100% sure where that would be. Yeah, no, I thought it was where they lived in the United States, too. And I read some of the trivia, and they said they were originally from New York, if I remember right. I don't know if there's evergreen forests that look like that, even in like upstate New York. I mean, you're talking about like these huge, huge fir trees and I mean, it just looks like dense forest. And I actually read that in the beginning as being an intercut between this sort of dark Swedish winter and yeah, wherever they were starting from in the U.S., and that's sort of providing the contrast to that, well, obviously, Swedish Midsummer, which is where we're going to spend most of the movie. And yeah, so this opening sequence that involves the sister's suicide and murder of her parents and sets up the really messed up relationship between the characters, Danny and Christian. It's completely different, really, in, in its tone in its palette in its presentation from the rest of the movie and it's only after we get through this first sequence which is 20 minutes is it like a half hour it seemed like it was rather long i don't know only after we get to the end of it do we have our title card yeah it felt very weird going to see it in theaters and you see all of the you know like promotional posters for it and it's very light and there's flowers all over it and you know it's a horror movie but then you go in and you see that opening scene and like you said the tone is so different from what you were probably expecting with it Especially with the opening music. Uh-huh. So how are we reading these characters, Danny and Christian? What do you think we're supposed to get from them early on or throughout or wherever we're going? I mean, Christian's a shitbag from the beginning, so I'm not sure how else to read him. Yeah, I think that it's really interesting, and I puzzled over this a little bit. There's a part of me that's tempted to say that you could just like cast someone who is a really bad actor and get the right performance out of this because so many of his lines are basically him saying things insincerely. I have to imagine that he's not just a bad actor, but that he's a good actor who's acting like he's acting and doesn't care. Right? <laughs> I don't know. My, my head twisted myself in knots over that, but that's basically the best way of explaining this character. He's just like a totally insincere dude drifting through life, doesn't really give a shit about anything or anybody. And when he speaks, you can feel that, that he just like doesn't fucking believe anything he's saying. I would say that the opening does very well just like a classic horror movie thing and we see this I mean, typically with college characters in a horror movie right these guys are in graduate school but it is a very typical horror movie trope where we're just set up to fucking despise these dudes and we do not really care if they die and we're predicting that they're going to die this one is the closest i would say to a standard horror setup i mean a bunch of jackasses from college go someplace where they're way in over their head and get murdered by some hicks. I mean, it, it is like really a classic horror movie setup. It seems like a very innovative movie because it's so artistically put together, because it's so visually interesting, because the sort of folklore is laid out just enough to where it seems rich and fascinating, but not enough to where you actually understand it so it can still be super, super mysterious and weird. And yet, if you boil it down to its components, it's a very, very basic horror plot of dumb college kids think they're smart, 
go somewhere where they don't know what's going on, get in way over their head, and get killed in the middle of nowhere by people who have some weird ideas about the world and have total control over this space that's completely outside the bounds of any you know normal order that these dumb college kids who thought they were smart would be aware of. It's absolutely classic. It's the same as anything. It's the same as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's the same as fucking Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> It's a classic horror movie plot, but it is dressed up in this very, very well-realized, artistic, visually sophisticated package. My observations are on this film are just completely random. Uh, they're not really on any track. Like I said, it works for me because, and I guess I didn't really think about the plot too much, but that's what worked for me is because I guess I've seen a fair amount of horror films in my day or in my time. I obviously have to see more, but I guess that's what did it for me is because it's what you expect, but it's not what you expect from all of the other horror movies that I've seen. So basically just, you know, restating your point. Like, that's what made it work for me. And I actually loved the first scene, the delayed setup. Yeah, yeah. To get into the title card, to get into... Well, and that's... I'm actually going. Yeah, and that's something that really separates it from the standard genre plot structure, that we have this set up to really establish this central character of the film and what she cares about and what's behind her and why she's basically untethered. And that is quite different than what we might expect in a film like this, both in terms of trying to build character and in terms of the whole, you know, plotting of the thing. What's most atypical for me is what's done with definitely the lighting. And I think that that was the most intriguing, all the visuals and how there's so much light in comparison to like where most horror movies, you know, you can't really see what's going on. But then Midsummer, especially with how Midsummer presents its violence and like the grotesque elements where it pushes it so far into your face. Well, one thing that I think is interesting, and I think that Ari Aster does this in Hereditary too, is that he will focus very intensely on the visual aspect. But he'll mute the sound in a lot of these crucial sequences. So you'll see the practical effect of the dummy's head being smashed with a mallet. But then everybody who's like screaming in the background, the volume will be pulled way down. So it's like a quiet scream. And I'm trying to remember, I think that he does that in Hereditary on a few occasions as well. So it's like you have this shocking visual and then like a muted audio. Yeah, no, your comment made me immediately think of the car crash. That same technique is used too. Yeah, yeah. The, the sort of quiet scream. And somehow it heightens it, you know, it, it, the sound bottoms out. And it for me, it heightened my emotions in that section. Yeah, it's very Brechtian. Can you explain why? Well, like Brechtian in theater what a lot of what Breck did was with the alienation effect, where it especially reminds me of Justice, where a character would go into a scene of tableau and it would be completely silent and you would just see the raw, overpowered emotion in the character, whether that's through a bodily thing or through 
like a facial expression. And a lot of the times he did a lot of stuff with silent screaming, where it was just like a person's contorted face just in pain and agony. And then he would have that as a scene for like solid minute and just have the audience sit with that. So I, I feel like definitely in Ari Aster's films, you know, where they show that grotesque element and just have you sit with it with no other elements other than just the visual, it just really draws you in and then makes like a very visceral experience. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed, and this kind of leads us to the thematic or philosophical qualities of Midsommar, the way that this community emotes around death and around suffering is really as a community. So our first major scene of violence is these two old people have reached the end of their life. They jump off this cliff. It's an enormous cliff. Their figures are like absolutely dwarfed by the size of this cliff. And then they jump off the first. The woman falls basically belly flop face first, dies instantly. The man falls vertically and breaks his legs and is still alive and moaning on the ground. And as they come up to him with this mallet that they then smash his head with, everybody in the community who's watching this is moaning and writhing, sort of like emoting in the same way that he is suffering. And this comes back again in the final scene where they're burning the yellow house and you have the two men who volunteered to be sacrificed along with the others. And they start out very calm. And then as they start to be burned up, they start screaming. And at that same moment, again, Aster pulls us back to the crowd, to the community. And everybody is in the field running around and writhing and screaming along with them. So it's like as a community, they feel these things together. It is not dispassionate killing it is a communal sacrifice that they all feel together I, I thought it was an interesting way of presenting that and yeah in a certain sense he does sort of through this weird alienation heighten the effect by literally muting it and that alienation also is that you know it's not our community is that we are watching a movie so he's playing with that too i was just gonna say i think it's interesting like thinking about how they react together as a community even with the outsiders too, like when Danny comes back after seeing Christian doing that weird sex ritual, like she starts <laughs> bawling her eyes out and everyone's just surrounding her. I don't know. Like it's not just for death, which I think is interesting. Yeah. And they, they tell her not to look. And of course she does. They accept her in a way that they don't accept anybody else. And I guess we're to assume right. that she then becomes a part of the community at the end of the movie, right? I mean, she's the May queen, right? She has she, to be. She doesn't go home. Yeah. What are you going to go She back has to? nothing to return to. This exactly. is her family now. She's untethered. Yeah. I mean, like the Swedish guy said, does he feel like home to you, Danny? This does. Oh, he does yeah. say that, doesn't he? And that's kind of like the genre point where, you know, the character comes to acceptance. You know, if I can tie it into Rosemary's Baby as well, like at the end where she rocks the cradle. Uh -huh. Throughout the whole film, the character is always sort of questioning and is like very off put by everything that's happening. But then right at the end, there's a shift where the character just accepts it as like a new normal. Wow. Yeah, I think it's interesting, especially because in most of these, all the main characters are like picked, not out of their own free will to do it, but then they end up accepting it. Yeah. And yeah. You see that in, yeah, that's a good point. And you see that in The Witch too. Madeline and I were talking about this earlier and I was like, Madeline, 
the ending what the fuck and then we were both like anya said if you can't beat him join him yeah <laughs> you know she i mean up. she's like if you think i'm the witch i will be the witch then i will you know? be the witch one thing that that movie does better than anything else that i've ever seen in this genre is it explains why someone would choose the demonic path in rosemary's baby we don't really quite understand and it's actually kind of hilarious to me and i think is supposed to be a little bit campy and amusing but like the Satanists are not evil people. They're just kind of like nosy, annoying neighbors who just know a whole lot about the world. But we don't really appreciate, like, why the fuck are they trying to arrange for the spawn of Satan to be born, right? <laughs> we don't really get in Hereditary, like, why are we trying to incarnate this god, Payman? Why is that something that this family's been working on for generations? And similarly, I guess in something like Midsommar, we can kind of understand how, well, this community lives by these rules, and this is their way of making sense of the world. We can understand it sort of in the abstract, but we don't understand it maybe in the specific. But in The Witch, we see this sort of really fucking bleak and joyless and sterile and miserable world of 17th century farming life. And the idea that one could live gloriously and deliciously in a magical realm where one had control over things. Yeah, that's appealing. And then furthermore, of course, at the end, it's like, well, there's nobody left. It's just her. And then she is very much in the same position that Danny is at the end of Midsommar. The difference is that she chooses. She chooses to kill Christian. There is a version of that movie where if Christian isn't a total shithead, Danny could spare him and they could leave. They could go home. But of course not. Of course not. No, because it matches perfectly with the character that they've already built. He's a shitbag, has to go and fuck this girl. And then that's her revenge, duh. I think that probably an ordinary person is going to read it that way. I don't think that it actually has all that much to do with the violation of monogamy. I think that it has more to do with him just being generally not really that great of a person. Maybe that's the final straw. I don't know. I feel like it's all leading toward that. I feel like you can't just put it in terms of like, oh, well, he cheated on her. They're all doing like weird things that they wouldn't normally do. No, that's not what I meant. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that she, even in just something as simple as dancing with these people and helping them prepare food and stuff like that, she's found more community than she had back in the U.S. Yeah, I guess that Midsommar is a sort of 21st century equivalent to something like The Witch, if you want to put it that way, because it doesn't dwell on the pointlessness and sterility of modern life the way that I guess something like Rosemary's Baby could be said to. But because we get that opening sequence of the sister who's just so at her wit's end that she kills herself and both her parents... We are certainly given the signal that this is a world that's not offering people much, and there is a reason to search for something else, something like a community, something like a family. It doesn't dwell on it the way that in The Witch we see how shitty it is to be a fucking farmer in America in the 17th century. In, yeah. In 1630. Yeah. Yeah. If you boil it down to the basics, it's really just a, an intense breakup movie. Right? No, no. <laughs> I mean, no. it just takes it so far 
And it's like, well, instead of burning all of his things, she just burns him instead. <laughs> Disposing of the whole man. The stupid reading is the best reading. No. Yeah. It's a fully anti-civilization movie. And I think it also shows how easy it is for people to join cults when they're in vulnerable places. I guess all of them are like that. Well, that's true. That's true. But to call it a cult, I mean, it is a cult, I suppose. But as a cult, it is presenting itself as an older, more original, more to the earth way of doing things. If they had set it somewhere other than Sweden, it would run the risk of playing to a certain Orientalism. And that's why I compare it to something like Cannibal Holocaust. I mean, shit, Cannibal Holocaust is about a bunch of fucking shit-hated anthropologists, too, I'm pretty sure. I find it strange that I keep bringing up Cannibal Holocaust on this podcast. I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching it. I don't know. I think that it's one of those movies that you should watch, like, once. But yeah, it's, Frank, what the hell is that? It's not for everyone. The qualities that I was bringing up in comparison were the sort of plot aspects, which again is actually a relatively ordinary horror plot where it really revolves around the main characters being fucking despicable and getting themselves into a place where they're in way over their head and where they're looking down on these primitive people that they're going to study. And actually, you end up rooting for the primitive people to fucking murder the shit out of them because they're horrible, horrible people. So you get the idea. What I was actually trying to get at was the civilizational, ecophobic aspect of these movies, which is to say that a movie like Midsommar and definitely a movie like The Witch operates on this notion of Western civilization as fundamentally horrified and antagonistic toward nature. And then it poses this question of, would there be a way of living in concert with nature? And what would that mean? Now, for the 17th century settler colonial, that's straight up demonic. The forest itself is demonic. The natural world is demonic, and to go into the forest and abandon civilization is to become a witch. And that's literally equivalent to going native and joining a tribe in the woods, right? We see that whole discourse emerging in the 17th and 18th century that basically conflates all those things together. By the time we get to a 21st century iteration of that concept, the idea of going back to the land or the idea of living in harmony with the seasons is actually very appealing to people coming from a civilization that's quite obviously on the decline or quite obviously out of its mind or quite obviously vapid, however you want to describe it. These people are not healthy. Is that the point that he's trying to make or is, am I just like reading all that into this? I don't know if it's the main point. I think it's really prominent in it. I think it's prominent actually in both The Witch and Midsummer, especially with the relationship between religion, like Christianity and nature, uh-huh. because they're so scared of it. And I think there's some sense of if you appreciate nature too much, then like it's almost in a sense worshiping that instead of worshiping like God or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not super prominent in midsummer but i mean he can't be named christian as a coincidence you good know? point yeah good point will do you have any thoughts about this i know that you're reading eco-critical theory so yeah but the whole return to nature argument is a big no-no 
I guess, for like... Well, of course it's a no-no, but we're talking about a yeah. horror movie, right? <laughs> we're, we're seeing why it's a no-no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we can't sugarcoat nature. And if you do, I think that any kind of eco-critic is going to say that if you do like try and set up a notion of nature with that big capital N as central to your life, you're going to end up in something like a cult. So it perfectly makes sense the way that I see it. You might say that Midsommar is actually taking more of an eco-critical angle on it to where you could say that, well, this big capital N nature is already and always will be merely this group of people's interpretation of nature. Well, that's why you get something like this. That's why it ends up being like, well, basically you got a cult. But also, you know, to be fair, we see the reason why that, that makes sense to some people. Not pushed super hard, but enough that we can see why it would make sense for some of these characters. In something like The Witch, we get more of just a straight up representation of ecophobia, which is a little bit different. We're not like really encouraged to take seriously the notion of submission to our Dark Lord as a philosophical approach to the world. It's merely the alternative option. I guess we're talking about The Witch now. I don't have substantial things to say right now, but I just want to say that I hate those children in that movie. They make me so angry. The twins? Don't... Yes. Oh, my yes, God. Yes, we hate the twins. They need to go. So were they actually talking to Satan? Because it feels like they were. They were Satan. One thing you get with those characters that is, again, realistic for me is that when you have kids that are born together like that, and that live together like that, they do develop their own sort of view on the world and their own codes and their own inside jokes and sometimes even their own language. And so that is very realistic to me, the kind of things that they're doing. And yeah, they can be little shitheads. Yeah, I think that you're supposed to really dislike the twins. Absolutely. But it doesn't seem like demonic to me. It seems like totally normal twin no, shit. No, it's just normal. And if that was what they were going for, then it worked well because we were clearly annoyed by them. But that is kind of the core of this movie where y you have a million totally realistic, ordinary, stupid things about the way that people rub up against each other the wrong way. And then this just completely fucking psychotic, overbearing religious interpretation of the world that sorts everything into questions of, well, is this godly or is this satanic? That sort of is the organizing worldview. And it ends up being, honestly, even though you know it's supposed to be a horror movie, to me, it ends up being kind of a shock by the time you get to the end and you're like, wait a minute, that's actually the world we're in? Yeah, I mean, the simpler way to say that is I was not expecting that ending yeah. at all. Yeah. I love it. I love that she actually flies in a circle. Like I've seen fucking woodcuts of that shit. And it was always these fucking stupid assholes were so fucking obsessed with the fact that they were scared of their own bodies and of the natural world that they thought that women were getting naked and flying in circles <laughs> because that made more sense to them than the fact that people got horny every once in a while. I just love that it fucking completely takes that and owns it and is like, yes, of course. She takes off her clothes and then she flies in a circle with the witches. And how cool would that be? Still covered in her own mother's blood. Of course. Of and course. what do we call that? Children, what do we Girl call boss. that? Girl boss. 
Yes. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, she's oh. not a girl boss. She is a girl servant of our dark lord and master. Those are synonyms, right? <laughs> <laughs> The kid that plays Caleb, I feel like was a really good actor in this movie. I think everybody was a great actor. I love Anya Taylor-Joy. Harvey Scrimshaw as Caleb and Anya Taylor-Joy as Thomason. I think that she was really incredible. I mean, I honestly think that all the acting in this was really on point. One thing, I, I almost hesitate to say it, but it's honestly true. Anya Taylor-Joy is beautiful. It's kind of stupid for me to say that because actresses in general are beautiful. That's why they become actresses or rather that's part of how they get cast as actresses. Like I say, I almost hesitate to mention this, but it is, I think, important to the role because anything that's trying to give us a realistic portrayal of paranoia about witchcraft in the 17th century is ultimately about intensive sexual repression. I mean, the fact that she is so beautiful, it really does anchor the part. Not only is she a great actor, but she also looks like the kind of person that you could imagine all the men around her suspecting of being a witch because she's too beautiful and all the women around her being jealous of. Even her own fucking brother! Yeah. Her own fucking brother! Oh my god. They set it up so well. And the camera does a great job of this. There are these quick moments throughout the film where Anya Taylor-Joy is doing something normal. She's doing the chores. The example I think of is when they're down by the river. She's like, oh, shit, I got to wash my father's clothes. And he's going and collecting water. And you're just like, okay, well, they're in this scene. They're down by the brook. The camera switches, and then you see a quick flash. The camera goes in tight across Anya Taylor-Joy's chest and specifically her upper chest. But the way it's shot, we're made to see that that is her brother's gaze. They do it so well because they do yes. it twice. And you can feel his repression, right? And he has to hide it. Like, he has to get the water. You know, he has to go about his day. You can feel it. And then later, when you get to the scene where the witch is young and she specifically leans down, that's not yeah. by accident. Yes, of course. You can feel his anticipation mm -hmm. and for lack of a better word, his release. That's a perfect know, word. That, yeah, no, his release of that repression for his sister. I thought that was a great part of the movie, actually. Yeah. Um, the there, camera work and stuff. Yeah. And there's something that, you know, a director would say, the, the camera loves her. Which is just like a fancy way of saying, you know, we like to shoot you <laughs> and you're beautiful on camera. But in a million movies, you see this done just for the sake of the male gaze, just for the sake of the presumed cishet male viewer. And here it's actually really crucial to the plot. It's actually really crucial to explaining what's going on and to dramatizing that intense repression. Like you were kind of saying, it sets up the why. They can't shoot tits without shooting ass. It's you, a rule. <laughs> it's a rule. Like, it's an unspoken rule. Everyone knows that. So they get that, right? They check that box. But they also check the ass part. When the devil is leading her into the woods, and her whole body is covered in darkness, except her ass is lit by the moonlight. There we go. <laughs> it's like a word. visual pun. Oh, shit. I didn't think of it like that. Yeah. <laughs>
So what else do we have about the witch? I have a whole thing on aspect ratios. One of my favorite things to talk about. Tell us about aspect ratios. So as I do, I often watch things on Amazon because I just steal my account from my parents. As I do sometimes, there's always trivia with the films. So sometimes when I have extra time, I go through and read the trivia. And I'll preface this by saying that I'm still learning about aspect ratios, but I thought this was interesting. So in one of the trivia things, it, you know, it gives the aspect ratios. So it's 166-1. Apparently that's rare now. Frank, do you want to give us some background? The short version of this is, believe it or not, there never has been a standard aspect ratio. Everything just fits into the box. It used to be that you had to have the projectionist fix it every single time, but now everything just fits in the box and it either gets letterboxed or pillar boxed. Letterbox being when you have the black bands on the top and bottom and pillar box being when you have the black bands on the left and right. Early films tend to have an almost square aspect ratio and then sometime around the 60s, things start to get more widescreen. But there's never, ever been a standard aspect ratio. And some movies will actually mess with this and use different aspect ratios during the same movie. So yeah, I don't know 166.6 or whatever. I don't know that specific one, but it's, yeah, sure, a strange one. You know, you can pick whatever aspect ratio you want to shoot in. People generally tend to assume that there would be a standard, but there isn't. What effect did the aspect ratio give us? Yeah, so... Apparently, they picked it because they thought it was timeless. They also mentioned 1851, too, and going back to the 50s. I don't know how that plays in, but... I think that's a long-winded way of saying it's a more square aspect ratio like those classic films would have used. What I got from it, 166.1, which is apparently what this is shot in, makes it claustrophobic uh-huh. in it, but in a good way. And the scene that really stands out to me with this and a good example of this is when, yeah, we're following Caleb through the woods and I forget which scene it is actually, but we're following Caleb through the woods. You're really, really close to his back. It's shot bottom up. So you see the trees looming over him and it just creates this very eerie effect. And it also Mm -hmm. gives you no space to breathe. You feel like you're right there behind Caleb in that instance. Yeah. Um, But also overpowered by the nature, by the trees and stuff like that. So, yeah. The short version of this is that, well, basically, the wide aspect ratio will give you a more sense of a broad landscape. And as you say, the narrow aspect ratio or the squarish aspect ratio gives more of a sense of confinement, more of a sense of being in a room, or more of a sense of the verticality of as you say, like the trees in the forest. And Robert Eggers's other feature film that he directed, The Lighthouse, also uses a more narrow, more squarish, more old school aspect ratio. So maybe that's just one of his things that he's like anti-widescreen. He's into this sort of confining feel. But it is also a little bit deceptive for us to assume that like, if we only think of the narrow aspect ratio as being confining, then we might miss out on the other things that it can do. So to me, hereditary is a very dark, and when I say dark, I mean literally dark. 
yeah film in comparison to the witch or midsummer even the exterior scenes in the witch are comparatively dark the witch is done all with natural lighting yeah and that's what i was going to talk about actually yeah. because will mentioned midsummer is a very light literally light horror film and I would argue so is a witch, but in different ways. And I just thought of this. And this also might be obvious, but it's just my observation is that, you know, the natural light creates a very different effect opposed to the lighting that we get in midsummer. Because in midsummer, yes, we have all this gore going on, but it's more of what you think of for your typical summer day. And usually people equate a typical summer day like that with happiness at least in you know the kind of childhood-ish clothes that they're wearing the flowers you know it might give some people and not everyone but you know it might give mm -hmm. some people memories of you know the stereotypical frolicking in a field and that is very different from the natural lighting used in uh, the witch you're supposed to feel completely opposite emotion from the lighting in these two films. Because as uh -huh. you said before, and as I agree, the natural lighting is very sterile. And you also get that with their clothing. They're not really wearing much color. Much color really isn't added to the frame, whereas that's different also in Midsummer. Yeah. The magic mushroom scene in Midsummer does remind me of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the, <laughs> the drug use was interesting. I actually think that those are some of the best scenes in the film. And I used to have conversations with people about this in college sometimes. And I think that at that point, the best filmic representations of tripping that I could remember seeing in a movie were, there are some scenes in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that do a pretty good job of it. And this one particular scene in SLC Punk. But other than that, it always seemed like just utter bullshit. The visual representations of tripping that we would see on film would be like, this is not what it is, you know. But what we see in Midsommar is really, really well presented. And again, very realistic in terms of the subjective experience of those kinds of mental states. And I imagine there are other movies that have done a good job of this since the early 2000s, but it is worth mentioning. The mushroom tripping and the tripping scenes in general are done quite well. The drug use is another interesting tie-in, I think, as well to how we've been talking about sort of how the genre is shaped, you know, where the film is trying to trick the audience in the same way that it tricks the characters. So if you have like yeah. these scenes that sort of establish that these characters are tripping and that their reality is already twisted in that sense, then how much are you going to trust their perceptions afterward as well? Because that happens in Rosemary's Baby as well, you know, during the devil rape scene, you know, you're not sure if that's a figment of her dream or if it's real. And there's so many shifts, even within the dream itself, you know, where she goes back and forth between believing and not believing if it's real. We talked about the Italian film Cannibal, I can't remember the name. Cannibal Holocaust. Holocaust. Yeah, Cannibal Holocaust. I kind of wish we watched another Italian horror film that I think no. is within the genre as well. Do you know Suspiria? Yes, I do. That film does a lot of really, really <laughs> similar stuff to Rosemary's Baby. I don't think I'll ever understand that one. What reminds you of Suspiria about Rosemary's Baby? 
just like the same trope, I guess, you know, female lead being drawn into like this cult type activity being drugged. I don't know. It feels in a way, you know, where the audience is, is trying to be duped as to whether or not the trauma that the woman character is facing is supposed to be real or if she's supposed to be like trusted as a narrator or not. And I guess that can lay into like how women are treated in real life as well, yeah. you know, where yeah. their ills are not really taken seriously. Yeah, I see in a lot of that just basically more universal themes of violence against women and of their marginalization, which obviously are really important to a film like Rosemary's Baby. I would be tempted to say it's just like in the mix of the culture and it's in the batter so it comes out in the bread, you know. I think that a good director is going to know that it's there, like a Hitchcock or like a Roman Polanski, right? To my mind, it's no accident at all that this movie, which is centered on this event of the drugging and rape of a woman, is uh, directed by a man who, 10 years later, is charged and pleads guilty to drugging and raping a woman, uh, or actually a girl. And I think that he's like aware of what he's doing. I think that he knows that this is something that needs to be critiqued, even if it is the demon that possesses him too, which maybe sounds a little bit too generous. But I'm just trying to understand what he's doing here. You know, to my mind, if we see similarities between something like this and Suspiria, I wonder if it's a genre connection or if it's a sort of cultural connection, so to speak. Just sort of like the same way that we have ecophobia connecting so many of these films. Where does just a broad cultural or civilizational trend like misogyny factor in? I think that, again, for lack of a better way of saying it, Roman Polanski's misogyny is sophisticated in a way where he kind of knows what he's doing while not being outside of it. And so this movie is all oriented around a million different people claiming ownership over Rosemary's body and expressing creepy concern and interest in the baby and in her pregnancy. It's really hard to like pick apart what's an intentional critique and what's just in the broth or in the batter or whatever metaphor we're using. Like, well, that's the world. And Roman Polanski is also, you know, a documented creep. And there it is. I don't have any feminist gas tonight because to me, it's just obvious. Tell us the obvious. Of course, our bodies are policed. Adele, you know, of course, her main function in this movie is to be a vessel. Yeah. For what? But to what degree is Polanski doing this knowingly? And to what degree is it just like, that's the way that he's going to write it because that's his world and that's his brain? I think it's more so that that's the way he's going to write it. Especially if we consider the time frame. This is 1968. I would argue that this is just it. I could see where you might compare him to a Clint Eastwood in the fact that he <laughs> knows that he's shitty. But to me, the world has more influence on this. Yeah. What does Madeline think? Yeah, Madeline. I was just going to say, I think the fact that throughout the movie, the fact that the rape is described as sex, I think that it's not commentary based on that. I don't think he would go as far as to like subvert people's ideas and call it sex when they know it's rape. I don't know. 
Well, but that is, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but that is also, I was joking about this earlier when we were talking about setting up this episode. I, I joked, Roman Polanski, a man of his time. And it was meant as a joke because I'm not trying to give Roman Polanski a pass, obviously. But I do think that it is fair to say that in 1968, there was not a hardline notion of consent that we have now. And that's kind of sad to say it. But if we want to be realistic, they're not going to use the word rape to refer to that. And even the character of Rosemary probably wouldn't in 68. Even the character of Rosemary probably would be like, that was creepy and that wasn't good, but probably wouldn't use the word rape. Uh, some people would. Anna, what's your sense of the historicity of consent in this case? If you consider even the history of, I frame it in the history of the late 60s, what they'd like to call, you know, sexual revolution. Um, oh, yeah. Starting... And it's actually not even supposed to be 68. The movie came out in 68, but it's taking place in 66, which is actually a pretty significant difference, too. I would still argue that the beginning of that, still within that time frame, I just stories I've heard and from what I've read, he's going with the times, baby. And especially in 66, the feminist movement was not cracking, you know, in 66. The second wave, at least. Yeah, and I think that our current emphasis on consent is... I would describe it as a very specific maneuver to establish a sort of baseline in the face of a lot of things. And it was oddly not the topmost concern in 66 or 68, where, as you said, it was much more a question of liberation in the first place. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the movie itself makes it clear that something bad has happened. Some violence has been done to Rosemary. There's no doubt about that. And yet, I'm not sure whether the language of the era would be the same as our language now. And I think that that's actually part of what makes it interesting for Roman Polanski. And that's a creepy thing, but it's a creepy movie and he's a creepy dude. I mean, quite honestly, I think that he likes the idea. Quite honestly, I think that he's interested in it, and that's why he makes a movie of it. And he even puts the line in the mouth of John Cassavetes, where for a moment he's admitting that he was kind of into the idea of having sex with his wife while she was unconscious. And like he says that to her, and he puts that in a movie. The fact that it's dealt with with such a light touch, but the more you think about it, the more horrific and disturbing it is kind of indicates where Polanski's at with this, that he knows this is a bad thing and he's playing with our awareness that it's a bad thing, but he also thinks that it's funny and silly in a certain way. He makes that character the devil. Does the same character say that line? No, he's not exactly the devil. I mean, I think the idea is that him and the devil were taking turns with Rosemary. Maybe in that we get the interplay in between Polanski's own thoughts. Yeah, he might now, but also his want to do it is just, I don't know, he just still wants to do it, so he's going to do it. Like he's liberating himself. I don't know his background, but... Polanski's life actually reads like an Ari Aster movie, practically. He grew up during the Holocaust, 
and was adopted by a Polish family. And basically his parents died in the Holocaust and he basically was sheltered by this family that concealed the fact that he was of Jewish descent. He has dual Polish and French citizenship. His first Polish movie was called Knife in the Water. His first English language feature film was called Repulsion. I recommend that movie strongly, though it's got a lot of creepy rape shit in there too. I would say Repulsion is an even better movie than Rosemary's Baby and even more confined. And it's the first in this apartment series. He does Repulsion in Britain, I think. And then Rosemary's Baby is his first Hollywood production. Then his wife, Sharon Tate, is eight and a half months pregnant and is murdered by the Manson family while Polanski's on location in, I don't know, France or wherever the hell he's shooting one of his movies. At some point in the 70s, yeah, he's charged with drugging and raping a, I think, 14-year-old girl. He pleads guilty, but then he hears a rumor that the judge is going to throw the plea out and give him hard time, and he flees the country. And he has never been back to the United States ever since. And there are other accusations against him other than that one girl. The woman who he did plead guilty to raping has done a number of interesting interviews since then where, you know, she's said a number of things that are sort of, I would not like to, you know, shade the fact that like this was obviously a rape, a drugging and a raping. But, you know, where she has said things to the effect of, well, everybody wants me to feel, you know, a certain way about this. It's been, you know, decades and decades, and I think that they should just drop the case. And it would describe Polanski as, well, he was arrogant and horny and I was naive, which is like, yeah, sure, that's how these things happen. I think that we need to keep stuff like this in mind when we're watching his films. And I guess say that this is somebody who's trying to figure that out himself. That sounds crazy, but I think that that's the only way that we can watch a movie like Rosemary's Baby, where he's trying to figure out something inside of him. I think that Hereditary was the only movie that I've watched in years that's genuinely scared the shit out of me. Yeah. And I'll argue that the scariest scene in there is the car crash or when the mother is recreating the accident and painting those figures. I find Um, that whole hobby to be creepy. Are hobbies inherently creepy or is it only certain types of hobbies that are creepy? Because I feel like that's one thing we're supposed to take away from this movie, that hobbies are inherently creepy. I think there's something else going on there, which is that if you're making little models of things and moving people around in dollhouses, it automatically is sort of referencing our notion of fate. It automatically is referencing our notion of, is there somebody pulling the strings and moving us around and telling us what to do, which is ultimately the theme of this movie insofar as the grandmother, that is Annie, Tony Collette's character's mother, That she, like, from beyond the grave is pulling the strings. Or that this has all been laid out long, long ago, right? So I think the fact that she is putting together these little models, these dioramas, really plays into that. Yeah. I could also read it as she's just trying to make sense of her grief. Yeah. I think it's kind of the combination of both with Ari Aster films, like, especially in Midsummer too. 
because you feel like the story's kind of set in stone with all of the murals and the tapestries and other things that you see that it's already set in motion. And then you have the character that's grieving through it. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's a good point, yeah. Will, is that Brechtian in any way? Am I crazy to think of that? What I mean to say is that do you think that in Brecht's notion of an epic theater, is he going back to something like the Greek tragedies, like Oedipus Rex, where we're sort of pawns in the hands of fate? Or does that negate the Marxist need to be a force of history as well? What's going on there? I don't think that Brecht really had anything that was about hands of fate. His was more using the theater to present these large-scale representations of history, but then emotionally involving the audience, and then at the same time disconnecting them from it all as well, to sort of constantly remind you that you're watching a show, that you're in the theater. What was your experience of watching Hereditary? Were you into it? In terms of craft, I think Ari Aster does a lot better with what he's trying to do with film in Midsummer. But also, I still really liked how the narrative in Hereditary, just like how the narrative in Midsummer is trying to present this sort of relationship strife and struggles, whereas Hereditary is trying to use the narrative to represent familial strife. Obviously, the grandmother resents the mother in some way for not allowing her to be close to her grandchildren. And then the mother also resents her children because she tries to set her son on fire when he was younger. This whole like family baggage where you have this weird relationship with either your children or vice versa, the children with their parents, where you secretly resent them, but then you can't ever really own up to them that uh-huh. because they're family. So you see it as a family drama more than anything else. I do, yeah. I'm tempted to say that there's not much of a sense of history in a movie like Hereditary, that it really is just limited to family strife. I think that's a good read, Will. And something that I guess maybe can distinguish it from the other movies. I guess that we're supposed to perceive the ending of Rosemary's Baby to be a sort of messianic moment where like this will change history. And I guess that for a movie like The Witch or Midsommar, we can think about the whole worldviews that are involved there, like the choice of a cyclical world over the sort of madness of late capitalism or the question of the forest versus the puritanical farm life. Those things are all, to my mind, historical in a sense, in a sense of going beyond these individual characters and engaging with worldviews and temporalities that are grander. And yet, yeah, I guess hereditary, even though they're literally summoning a god and the ending seems so grand and so significant, ultimately it does kind of boil down to this conflict within a family, which is kind of weird if you think about it. I mean, that is what the title suggests, too. I don't know whether or not I wish it expanded more on what they were doing, like with the other films. I can't tell if it would have added or not. I'm tempted to say that it gives us just enough, but at the same time, yeah, it does make you wonder, like, why? Like, with Rosemary's Baby, we see that, well, everybody has their reasons. They want this little bit of power. I want to get this role and advance my career and so on. You, You cut the deal with the devil for a million different reasons, right? With the witch, there's this sense of, well, 
life sucks and wouldn't you love to live deliciously, right? With Midsommar, we have the question of the cyclical versus the madness of civilization just grinding itself. Increasingly, I suspect that in 21st century horror movies, we're not or maybe in 21st century movies in general, we're not going to have to have much of a justification for like, fuck this world, right? Yeah, we can see why the back to the earth vision might appeal. But in Hereditary, I really am hung up on this notion of, well, what's the point? What's the point of burning up several generations of your family to summon this god? I don't know. And maybe in a certain sense, it's scarier to not know. Maybe it's scarier to just get a little tiny bit. I mean, we can also think like genre convention stuff is it is it a little bit of hokey. It's like, oh, I found in this book that it explains this thing that, you know, like we get that here and we get that in Rosemary's Baby. It's clearly like an element of the genre. I don't know how else you can do it. It does put you in this place where there is an advantage to not saying too much. It keeps it scary. And at the same time, we want more explanation because, well, that's fun, too. I was just going to say that I found the use of a treehouse in a horror film interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's not the first time that I've seen that, actually. I remember in high school, my best friends and I, Georgia and Ava at the time, we it was around Halloween, actually. And I'll spare you the story, but we ended up watching this really shitty movie on Netflix. And I think it was called The Ritual. And there they also do the hokey stuff where they all float up and become deer. And they also use a treehouse in the woods. So there's that again. They float and become deer? Yeah. It's a crazy movie. I Wait, Anna, say, isn't that one also in Scandinavia? I don't know. Yes, it's also in Sweden, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. I watched The Ritual first, and then I watched Midsummer. And then immediately when I was watching Midsummer, it made me think of the ritual. A group of old college friends reunite for a trip to a forest in Sweden, but encounter a menacing presence there stalking them. Directed by David Bruckner. Literally. Literally. 2017. They also use altered state of minds in this one when the main character, I forget the kid's name, but when Peter? like he's high while he's driving home. Peter, yeah. Yeah. What? And then, you know, his sister gets beheaded. I don't know. Yes. It feels so freaky to me. I love that scene. I love that scene so much. It's incredibly Anna. freaky. Anna, why do you love that, it? For that exact reason. The same reason why I love the triple death scene at the start of Midsummer. Because That's you're a sick fuck. Frank summarized it perfectly. That's exactly why. That's okay. Me too. I, at least I'm proud of it. I'm not uh, ashamed. I'm very ashamed. I sure. want to talk about the thirsty crow. When I say this crow is thirsty, this crow is really thirsty. Tit pecking thirsty. He is like, goddamn woman, like, I'm going to do this whether you want me to or not, because it's been too fucking long. And then he just <laughs> goes for it and have to applaud him. But I would say he goes a little bit too hard. Well, of course. Poor woman wakes up in bed with a bloody nipple, doesn't know what happened. <laughs> That's my philosophical contribution for the night. My contribution is about chromophobia in addition to ecophobia. So we don't actually have, you know. You mean chromophobia? Like. Ah, ha, 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 ha. No, no, that would be corvidphobia. Chrome, like C-H-R-O-M, as in a fear of color, as sort of related to ecophobia. 
we don't exactly have racism in this film or honestly in any of these films we get a little hint of it in the witch honestly in a casting decision but that's probably intentional but we do certainly have chromophobia in this notion of the black goat the black crow the black cat the presumed evilness of a uh, dark creature the presumed sinister nature of the night will you ever come across commentary on chromophobia i can't say that i have or is this just like so obvious that we've just made a fancy word for something it definitely feels like high school English teacher-esque. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, the colors, what do they mean? It feels like it could be a thing, but yeah. I don't know how significant or useful it is for, I don't know, well, making any concrete observation. Yeah, I mean, I think it is kind of just in the realm of the obvious. European culture, obviously, at some point chose to start being like, oh yeah, black cats and crows and, and, and dark shit is creepy. There is probably some value in wondering when exactly that happened because at least the version of anti-racist theory that I teach currently maybe in part is because I'm Marxist but I've heard a lot of non-Marxists say this too that racism as we understand it today only develops in the context of the transatlantic slave trade doesn't predate it that's not to say that xenophobia didn't exist. That's not to say that people didn't hate each other and do horrible things to each other. But the notion of you are of this shade linked to this continent and therefore somehow less human is like a new thing that emerges in the 17th and 18th century, specifically in the context of the transatlantic slave trade. And so it is worth stopping to think, okay, so where does chromophobia come from then? Where does the idea of a black goat as evil and the black crow as evil and the black cat as the familiar of the witch. Where does that come from? Is that something that emerges along with racism or is that something that predates it and lays the groundwork for it? I feel like it probably predates it, to be honest, because I mean, like, there definitely has to be biblical imagery or even medieval imagery that has to do with black creatures animals that are malicious. I can't really name any specific examples off the top of my head, but it feels like there has to be some sort of painting or representation of that somewhere. I don't know. I'm kind of out of my depth here, but it is something that I'm pondering because it is something that is so tied to the horror framework. And especially when you're getting into these kinds of stories. And I do happen to be teaching African-American lit now, too, so I'm sort of doubly concerned with it. The more movies we watch, the more we realize that a lot of it is just dudes working out weird shit in their head. I mean, what's up with Ari Aster? (laughs) I love Ari Aster, though. You can love him, but he's definitely working out some weird shit in his head. There's no doubt. Same with so many others. Same with everybody. So many others. Same with everybody. everybody. Some of this shit is more nefarious and some of this shit is more twee, but yeah. So I have a parting shot here, and I think this is important. And this is, as usual, very unproductively drawn from some shit that somebody who maybe is just in a habit of thinking too hard about things on Twitter, but might also be right at the same time, wrote. 
Is Ari Aster actually kind of horribly ableist? Is it just a coincidence that he sets the hinge of hereditary on the catastrophic death of this character who's obviously mentally different in some way? Is it coincidental that an anchoring creepy aspect of the cult in Midsommar is that they have this developmentally disabled person making art of the event as it happens, and then this becomes a holy scripture that's interpreted? Is there not some element of, like, be afraid of disabled people in this? I hate that. But even if you hate it, could it not also be true? The one scene that I think of in Midsummer, everyone's participating in something. I don't remember what, but everyone's participating in this activity. And the only person that isn't participating in this activity, they're only allowed to watch, is that person that you mentioned. In the last scene where she's she's picking who's going to live and who is going to die, we have the shot of the deformed face and the person just pawing finger paint onto the pages of this book that we know is going to be a sacred text. It's done with a light touch, but it's obviously supposed to provoke revulsion from us. I don't know. I was thinking more about in Hereditary how, of course, like the character that might be like mentally developed different is the one that one of the seven kings of hell is using as a host. It's also interesting because that's not even the body that Payman wanted because they want a healthy male body. So exactly. And very too. She's defined as deficient. On account of being a woman, for one thing, we're told explicitly, but also because there's something wrong with her. I was going to talk about the clack sound, actually. I love that. Um, I love that. Yeah. We talked about the sound earlier where the lack of sound actually yeah. heightens the effect. Obviously, there is sound. But if I remember right, that's the only sound that's going on in some of those scenes is the clacking, especially when she's carrying the dead bird. To my mind and to my taste, that had the same effect on me. Yeah, yeah. Like an anchoring note. Mm-hmm. Will, what are your thoughts? I definitely think that you bring up a good point with that and something that I had not considered before. And I mean, obviously, I'd like to get his word on it as well and like his intent with it. But obviously, I wouldn't want to give the benefit of the doubt to a person that may be ableist and like is just trying to use it as a cheap way to. But. Yeah, I don't think it actually matters what he thinks. I mean, I think that as a culture, we're ableist and we can just say that like in the same way that like, yeah, sure, Roman Polanski is a rapist, but it actually matters less that Roman Polanski is a rapist than the fact that the whole culture of 1968 was absolutely controlling women and absolutely not interested in their consent and that's why rosemary's baby is a document of that culture and so similarly we can say yeah sure we might say that about ari aster but that may be less important than what this says of all of us you know sort of like the classic sense of the close reading i'm not sure that anything ari aster could say about this would mean anything at all he'd probably just get defensive you know because when you said it, I had never considered that ableist aspect to the film, but maybe why I didn't really think of it, because to me, it's just what you expect from able-bodied people to treat differently abled people like that. Yeah. 
if we think about how this is congruent with sexism in the horror film and racism in the horror film, there is an element where some of these prejudices are just so baked into the genre that people just accept them as, well, that's the way it goes, you know? I think it's becoming more and more common, obviously, to go against the grain on race. And Ari Aster seems to be aware of that. Like the one character that seems to be with it and at least interesting and not a moron is the Black character in Midsommar. Of course, he's just as guilty as all of them are. But, you know, that's just to say that Josh's character, played by William Jackson Harper, you know, we're given somebody who's fully fleshed out and interesting in a way that in the old school horror movies, he would have just been the first guy to die. I think that things like sexism and ableism are still very much baked into the cake. All of these do take on, I think, the subjectivity of women in a way that's more interesting than even the classic horror film way of doing it. Maybe Anna and Madeline, you can be a better judge of that than I can. But I think it's more complex than the classic last girl thing. I would agree. And at least in the terms of Midsummer. But you get what I'm saying, where like there's a certain presumed sexism to the horror film that everybody gives a pass at. It's not surprising that we're ready to give a pass to ableism, too. No, it's not. And that's no less damning of the culture. It's just if we're trying to be critical fish, we got to be aware of the water. I think it is worth wondering whether it's going to continue to be a thing in his films or whether it just happens to have been in these first two. Let's see when it comes out. So Ari Aster's next film is Disappointment Boulevard. Robert Eggers' next film is going to be The North Man, which is a Viking revenge story. So he's he apparently only does period pieces. That'll be interesting. I'm excited for that, as excited as I am for The Lighthouse. I was going to ask Will and Madeline what their least favorite scene was and why. Anna, I'm sad when the bear gets embalmed because you know how much I like bears and it makes me sad. That was my least favorite What is with the bear? I actually, this is worth dwelling on. The bear seems totally unnecessary and I think it's interesting and all. And it's referenced in the drawings and I get that there is maybe some value to being like, there's some more to this mythology and magic than you even know. There's something deeper and more complex going on. It just sort of feels like, well, we've chosen some random thing and now we're going to put him inside a bear. Why does he? Why is he the one who goes inside the bear? Is it because he's the one who fucked the redhead? Is that why they put him in the bear? But like they wanted that to happen. I think no. that's got to be it, though. It, that's got to be it. I can't figure it out because to you and I and anybody else, there's nothing special about this schmuck. He's just some jackass, right? But to them, he's the guy who brought in his seed to reinvigorate their bloodline. Well, this is the way that they put it, because they need to bring in people to keep themselves from just falling into incestuous degeneration, right? To put somebody inside a bear is to honor them, to equate them with this powerful beast to say here he is in a certain way honored, like the way that we would honor some powerful animal that's difficult to kill. And so the more I think about it, the more I think, no, the reason why this schmuck ends up getting put inside the bear and nobody else's, it's not like they have a bunch of different animals and everybody gets put inside an animal. It's like, no, just this one guy gets put inside the bear. 
It's because he uh, laid pipe. He laid his pipe. Mm-hmm. Are we still going through worse scenes? I don't know. The baby mashing scene always makes me really uncomfortable. Also, I don't like dissident violin sounds. It's it's not that I dislike the way that it's done. It's just that it makes me incredibly uncomfortable, which I guess is the point of the whole movie. My least favorite. I thought it was so funny how on his way out from his stall romantic session with the redhead, he doesn't even grab his clothes. What I was more about was him running around with his hands over his dick. Everybody knows that you're naked. At that point, why bother? You're naked. Just deal with it. What I was going to say is, like, he has a secondhand embarrassment. Like, you know what you did. Like, just own it at that point. I thought that was very silly. He was drugged. He's a silly... And expect him to think rationally. He's a silly man. Well, I like this scene, but I also thought it was creepy and I didn't like it. It disturbed me. Where he finds one of his travel comrades... First, he walks into this shed, and I think he still has his dick out, but you know, he sees these two strings of flowers, and he sees a head first, or what looks like a head, or yeah. a pelvis bone, but he walks in further, and then you get this beautiful bottom-up shot of this man with flowers in his eyes, Yeah. and the men in my family are hunters, like I've seen enough deer cut open, you know, slate open like a deer cart, hung up like a trophy. And I thought that was both incredibly creepy, but I also liked it. It was just the obvious mix, but done really well between what you think of as beautiful with flowers and stuff, and then, you know, repurposing a body for different uses. And usually when you use a carcass like that, it's for food. But in this way, they were nourishing their culture. You've been listening to Professor Frank Fuchile, research assistants Anna Wendorf and Will O'Brien, and me, co-producer Madeline McCabe. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. The song in today's episode is Rosemary's Baby on Fantoma's album, The Director's Cut. You can support The Pointless Century at patreon.com slash thepointlesscentury, as well as troll us on Twitter at PointlessCent, and follow us on Instagram at thepointlesscentury. We'll see you next time with another episode of The Pointless Century.